Would you agree with me that no one wants to be alone? No one wants to be alone. I don't mean ever. I mean, some of us want to be alone sometimes, right? Solitude is a good thing. My fellow introverts would agree that solitude is good, but isolation is awful. Ultimately, no matter what your type might be, you need people. We all need people. We need community. Our Creator knows this about us. God tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In other words, He says, Share in one another's experiences, step into each other's joys and each other's sorrows. And, and the flip side of this is, is we, we could also read this to, this way it's telling us to welcome others into our joys and sorrows. To actively move towards people in their times of happiness and in their times of sadness, but also to welcome others into our lives when we're happy and when we're grieving. And so we're going to ask three questions today, three simple questions. What does this mean? Why do we do it? And, and how can we do it? So the what, the why, and the how. So what does it mean, first of all, to Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, like I said, God is calling us here to share in one another's experiences. And really, he's even calling us to share in one another's emotions. He, he's calling us to resist indifference on the one hand, to, to not be indifferent to one another's pain within the community of the church. But he's also calling us to resist envy. Envy, that, that, that state of mind that, that keeps you from celebrating the blessings and the accomplishments of others because you feel like you deserve some of those blessings and some of those accomplishments. Here's how one author, Pastor Ray Ortland, puts it. He says, in a gospel culture, the people do not eye one another with negative scrutiny and merciless comparisons and guarded aloofness, but they move toward one another with rejoicing, acceptance, and honor. They move toward one another with rejoicing, with acceptance, and with honor. What, what Ortland doing is he's describing a community where your accomplishments are our accomplishments to celebrate together. Where your blessing is a blessing to the whole community. And so I, as an individual in that community, will thank God with you for that blessing. And in such a culture, a Romans 12, 15, 16 culture, even, even your sadness becomes my sadness. I will weep with you because your burden has become my burden. And vice versa. It's this, this two-way street of empathy. There's a the very similar message for us in 1 Corinthians 12. It says there, if one member suffers all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, I, I, I think that indifference and, and jealousy or envy, they can sometimes come naturally to us. They, they, they can sometimes be kind of an instinctive response in certain circumstances. Rejoicing with others and weeping with others can be difficult at times. Would you agree? When, when might it be particularly difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice? 
How, how, let, me, let me suggest a couple of possible answers. How about when what someone else gets is what you've been wanting or praying for or working for? They got a new position while you wait to be promoted and keep getting overlooked. They found marriage or happy marriage and you struggle. You struggle and pray and wait for marriage or for a happier marriage. They got the acceptance email from the school that waitlisted you. So many areas, so many circumstances where we find it hard to enter into the joy of others because we want that joy. When is it hard to weep? When is it hard to weep with others? Isn't it hard sometimes to weep with others when you're suffering too? And perhaps you feel alone in your suffering and you feel like no one's weeping with you? Or maybe when you're simply just caught up with your own concerns, you're busy and you're stretched and you're, you've got so much to think about. You feel like I don't have the bandwidth to, to suffer with someone else, to come alongside them and their pain. So I think it's helpful for us to simply admit the difficulty of all this whether it's because of our busyness or because of our, our self-centeredness, for whatever reason, it's hard. And let's also realize that what God isn't calling us to here, he isn't calling us to simply ignore our own emotions in order to step into the experiences of others. He's not calling us to ignore the way we feel in order to empathize with someone else. Instead, what he's calling us to do is enter into the emotions of others but, but, here's the thing, you can grieve your own disappointments even while you celebrate the joy of someone else who you love. You can do those two things at the same time. If they matter to you enough, if, if you see yourself as connected to this other person and you see them as valuable and worthy of your love, then you can rejoice over what they're experiencing even while you lament your own loss or your own pain. And the flip side is true, too. You can rejoice over what you have and still enter into the sadness of your sister or your brother. You can grieve your own pain while you rejoice over their blessing, too. And this is what God is calling us to. We, we can feel more than one thing at one time, can't we? We try to teach my little kids this with the help of board games. They like to play board games, my two youngest do got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. They're our two youngest kids, and they, they love playing simple games like Candyland and Chutes and Ladders and Trouble with each other. And what we often find is that they're all happy while they're playing the game, but at the end of the game, one of them is rejoicing and the other is weeping. <laughs> and so what we've tried to encourage them to see is that, look, 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 you, you can actually celebrate your victory and still hug your little brother who's crying because you just crushed him. And, and the flip side, you can lament your loss, even if it's the third loss in a row, and still congratulate your big sister and genuinely say, great job. And you can actually be happy for her, even through tears, because you love her. And, 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 and that love part, that's, that's a key that we'll come back to later. It's interesting, you know, in Romans chapter 12, right after telling us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, the author says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. 
live in harmony with one another. The, the reality is that so many different things are happening at the same time within a community. We're not all going to be feeling the same way all the time, right? And yet we can seek to enter into one another's experiences, even while we deal with our own stuff. But when we enter into one another's experiences, what emerges is a kind of harmony. You know, it's not monolithic. We all don't feel the same thing at the same time all the time, but there's a, a harmony of emotions as we enter into one another's experiences. He goes on to say, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And that word lowly, it could be translated different ways. The translation that was read for us earlier, um, I think translated as a person of low estate or of low position, which is a, a legitimate translation. But the same word is translated elsewhere in the scriptures differently. Sometimes it's, it's translated as downcast. Lowly can mean depressed. Lowly can mean discouraged and beaten down. And so the author is saying, don't be haughty or arrogant or wise in your own sight, he says, as if you can take credit for how things are going for you. When things are going well, in other words, don't be haughty. Don't, don't be arrogant and superior, acting as if, look, my life is great because of the decisions I've made, because of, the, because of what I've done. Instead, he says, draw close to the disappointed, the discouraged, the depressed, and feel the weight of what they're going through. Instead of taking credit for the good in your life, give thanks to the Lord, and also simultaneously come alongside the lowly, the downcast, and experience some of the some of the sadness that they're carrying. So that's the what here that we're being called to. But why? Why, why would we do this? Why would we do this? Well, I, I think I hinted at it earlier. In the, the one word answer is love. Love. To truly share in the experiences of someone else is an act of love. And we all know this, don't we? Have you ever experienced it? Where, where you love someone so much that you feel the pain that they feel their suffering becomes your suffering. You can't avoid it. It's because you love them so much. You want so bad to take the pain away that that impulse can come naturally at times. But it doesn't always come naturally. And so Romans 12, 15 tells us to actively move towards it, to actively extend that kind of love even when it doesn't come naturally, even when it's not the immediate reaction. Romans 12, 15 is a call to intentionally move toward others in their suffering and in their joy and to willingly seek to share in it. It takes effort because of love, because of love. But we have to think about what kind of love motivates this. Back in verse 9, the author of, of, uh, of Romans, the Apostle Paul says in verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. In other words, he's saying, he's saying don't, don't, don't fake love. Let it be real. But this real love is not just a, a passive feeling either, something that comes and goes. No, it's, it's intentional. The kind of love that he's talking about is an act of the will, and it's motivated by the gospel. 
by the gospel, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, if you believe that he is the Son of God himself and, and that he, he became a man in order to enter this world and share in human suffering and pain, that he entered this world in order to experience the worst that this world has to offer, all the rejection, all the abuse, all the venom and slander and abandonment, all the loss, and to ultimately die a disgraceful death on the cross. If you believe that he did all that in order to have you, because he loved you, because he regarded your well-being even more highly than his own comfort, even more highly than his own life, because he wanted you to have eternal life. If you believe that, then you have believed the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. If you believe that he willingly entered into our suffering that it, so that we could enter into his joy forever. And then he rose again, proving to you and to me that, that he completed the mission, that, that your future is now secure you believe that then you have believed the gospel that that good news of jesus and when you believe that good news of jesus you were brought into a family the family of god you were united to every other person who's trusted in jesus that means that you we are now one we're one because in the, in the words of ephesians 4 we've believed in the same lord and we've received the same holy spirit who lives in each of us and binds us to each other makes us one so that now we love each other as one. That's why, that's why 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together because we're one, because the gospel has made us one. Perhaps you've experienced um, th th this phenomenon where you're, there's a problem in your body, there's pain somewhere, but it begins to resonate in other parts of your body. You ever experienced this? A malady somewhere in, in here causes pain up here or back here. It starts to, to spread. It, it, that's, it's, it's, it's because we're, because everything's interconnected in there, right? And so it is in the body of Christ, in the church. That interconnectedness means that your pain resonates with me. My joy resonates with you. And that's the kind of connection that drives us to say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. My wife recently was in a competition that she had trained very hard for and, and, and was really excited about. And she did well in this competition. How ridiculous would it be if I felt jealous about her accomplishment, about the attention that she got? If I looked at the medal that she got in that competition and thought, where's my medal? Or what, wouldn't it be weird? It would be strange, right? It would be odd. What if I were just indifferent about it? Like just wouldn't even mention, didn't even talk about it, didn't congratulate her or anything. It would be odd, and the reason it's so odd is because we're one. We're one, and I love her. Her accomplishment brings me great joy, and so it should. What if one of my children were, were ill? How, how weird would it be for me to barely even think about it or pray about it and to ignore their illness. And why is it strange? Again, because we're members of one another, and so it is in the church. And so it is in the church. 
But because God knows how easy it is for us to grow distant from one another, or even to grow indifferent and um, even envious at times, he reminds us and he instructs us to cultivate this oneness, to live it out by sharing in one another's experiences and inviting others into ours. He wants us to remember that we're not alone. You are not alone. In Christ, you've been brought into a family. So, so why not live like it? Why not invite others into your pain, even your struggles? Struggles with any kind of suffering or struggles with addiction or marriage troubles, don't, whatever it is, the Lord is pleading with us to not isolate ourselves. Isolation is a major pathway to discouragement. Isolation is the perfect breeding ground for depression and anxiety. I'm not saying that isolation causes all that, but it certainly is a perfect environment for depression and anxiety to thrive. And we all know that. And isolation is also the best breeding ground for sin. It's where self-deception and self-destruction flourish. Romans 18, I mean Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Romans 12.15 shows us the opposite of isolation. I think it's worth us asking ourselves, what is it that might keep us from opening our lives to others and inviting others into our pain? Maybe you think no one will understand. Maybe you've tried in the past and it hasn't gone so well. People have been less than helpful, less than trustworthy. Maybe you think folks will judge you if you let them in. They won't know how to help you, perhaps. Or maybe they won't even care. And, and all those are possibilities. This is risky, of course, isn't it? It's risky to invite others into your suffering. But what is God calling us to? If you're his child, what he's calling you to is to take the risk of genuinely opening your life so that he can work through brothers and sisters who you invite in to, to weep and to fight with you and to pray with you and to ultimately rejoice with you. The gospel motivates us and it empowers us toward open solidarity. Let's not live like we're alone. And, and, I, and I'll pause just to say that I think that sometimes in our, our, our fear in letting people in, maybe because we're afraid they're going to let us down, they're not going to understand our suffering, they're going to somehow disappoint us. I think that's possible. Those are all legitimate fears. But I think sometimes we don't let people in because we simply fear being known. We don't want to be known. And yet, what is God calling us to? He's calling us to welcome, to open our lives, not indiscriminately, but to do so thoughtfully, prayerfully, within the community of people that he has put in your life for this very purpose. So how do we do this? How do we do this? This is where we're going to end. Just think practically about it. Entering into one another's experience and emotions is easier said than done. Um, some of you maybe are really great at this. You, you recognize how people feel. You can see what they're feeling, and, and, and you can empathize with them, and it comes so natural. Thank you. You're, you're, you're a great gift to the church if you're gifted in that area. You're an example to the rest of the church. But some of us, we need help in this area. I recently read 
uh, about a few studies that seem to show that women are better than men at recognizing emotions in others. Does that come as a surprise to you? <laughs> I can't tell if you're surprised or not because I can't read emotions. I, I've, I'm a man, so I don't know. But I wasn't surprised when I read that. That, that gives you an advantage, I suppose, in living out Romans 12, 15, if you are readily more able to read others' emotions. But don't be discouraged, guys. We, first of all, the differences in, the, in, in these studies, the difference between men and women, was, it was slight. It wasn't, it wasn't major. And, and maybe some of you guys here are outliers. Maybe you're great at this. But in any case, how do we do this? How do we do this? I've, I've already tried to show that the power comes through believing the gospel, that unites us and motivates us to love as one. But as we end, let's just think practically about weeping with those who weep. Because that's the half of this that I think we often get wrong in spite of our best intentions. Rejoicing with those who rejoice can be difficult, but it's usually a problem of the heart. Um, like we don't want to rejoice. With that. But, but the weeping with those who weep, that part is tricky because some of us may have great intentions in this area. We want to enter into the pain and the suffering of others, we just kind of fumble it and do a bad job of it sometimes. I want to recommend a couple of books to you. One of them, it's hard to, to, to read the title. I just wanted to show the cover. It's, a, it's called What Grieving People Wish You Knew by a woman named Nancy Guthrie, who's a great Bible teacher who has experienced the loss of two of her children. She lives with grief, and she says, here's why. I wrote this book to let you know what grieving people wish you knew about them and how to help them. And then another book that I found very helpful is called Being There. It's by a guy named Dave Furman who, who lives, with, uh, he lives with chronic pain. Um, and so he writes this book called Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting. And Furman actually gives us what I want to share with you. He gives us these, a list of what not to do when you're seeking to grieve with those who grieve or weep with those who weep. He calls them Ten Commandments. Don't, don't do these things, he says. First of all, he says, don't be the fix-it person, the fix-it person. Uh, perhaps we've made this mistake in trying to enter into and, and walk alongside a fellow brother or sister who's suffering. We show up like the handyman trying to fix the problem. And that could look like for your brother or sister who ex who's experiencing physical malady or, you know, sickness, it may look like you just recommending uh, all sorts of medicines and therapies and doctors and things like that, as if this person hasn't thought about all this already. But it can take a spiritual bent, too. We could come in and, and try to immediately fix whatever is wrong in this person's life with a few Bible verses or a book <laughs> or some words of wisdom aimed at just correcting and fixing the problem now. He says, no, don't be the fix-it person. Don't be the fix-it person. He also says, don't, don't play the comparison game. Don't compare. Well, at least, at least you don't have it as bad as so-and-so. Oh, those are such harmful words, aren't they? Or, or some of us have done this. I know I have. I see your suffering. Well, let me tell you about what I experienced. Let me compare your suffering to my suffering. That'll really help. It doesn't. It doesn't. He also says, don't make it their identity. Don't make suffering or the pain or the difficult, whatever trouble that this person is in, don't make it their identity so that every time you see them, it's all you ever bring up. He also says, don't promise relief now. Sometimes we can 
We can over-spiritualize things. We can start to make promises that God hasn't made. Oh, God is going to deliver you from this suffering. Oh, he's going to deliver. If you pray enough, if we pray enough, if you have enough faith, he's going to deliver you now. You're setting your friend up for frustration and disappointment. We are, after all, not saviors, and we don't have all the answers. And we certainly don't know when God is going to bring relief. He says, don't encourage them to just move on. Get over it. It's pretty obvious, right? He also says, don't bring on the Inquisition. Some of us, when we're seeking to help those who are suffering, we, we go into questioning mode. We start to ask questions. Questions that seem to be communicating, what could you have done differently so that you could have avoided this trouble that you're in? That, that seems to be kind of the underlying thrust of these questions. What, 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 what did you do to get yourself into this problem? He also says, don't be hyper-spiritual. I'll leave it to you to kind of make sense of what that means. Don't be hyper-spiritual. He also says, don't play the avoidance game. Have you ever done this? I don't know what to say to this person who's grieving, who's suffering. And so maybe it's best if I just stay away from them because I might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And it's so awkward and it's so uncomfortable. And so we end up crossing to the other side of the street so we don't need to engage in that awkwardness. And so your suffering brother or sister now feels all the more pain because they're being left alone. They're being ignored, avoided. He also says, I found this one helpful. He says, don't pledge general help. He says, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't offer help in this way. I've said this a million times. He says, anything I can do, let me know. He says, instead, instead, because what you're doing there is you're, you're, this, whoever is, is suffering, this person is already carrying a weight of pain and, and a weight of, of, of difficulty in their life. You're now putting another responsibility on them. You're saying, think of some ways that I can help you and let me know. Instead, he says, he says, try this. Offer specific help and provide specific help. Maybe it's, I don't know, it could be groceries. It could be a ride. It could be a gift of some sort. It could be a meal. It could be any number of things. It could be a but babysitting, it could be any number of things. He says, offer, show up and provide that practical help. And if it is indeed helpful, then consider doing it again. Don't offer general help. And then he says, lastly, don't, don't condemn them. Don't condemn them. That would seem obvious, but it wasn't so obvious to Job's friends. Do you know the story of Job? No. Don't condemn. In, a, in, a, in any case, you might read a list like that and start thinking, goodness, there's so many things I can do wrong. How do, how do I actually help someone? There's, I don't want to break these Ten Commandments. Well, I would, I would leave you with this, brothers and sisters. Don't underestimate the power of simple, silent presence. I'll read a quote to you. It's from a book called A View from a Hearse by Joseph Bailey. Some of you might know this book. The author, Joseph, tells this story. He says, I was sitting torn by grief, 
Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish that he'd go away. And he finally did. And another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly. He prayed simply and then left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. End quote. Many of us, many of us can testify firsthand that when we look back at seasons of intense grief, we don't remember the exact words that people shared with us, but we do remember the people who showed up and sat with us in our tears. And so Romans 12:15 is calling us to be those people who show up and sit with others in their tears. We are not one another's saviors, but the Spirit lives in us. And he works through us to bring comfort and hope. And it's our Savior who said, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are being like our Savior when we draw near to the brokenhearted, because the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. We are being like our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, when we simply are present with others in their pain. May God give us grace to fulfill this call as his people.